Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. For the past few years, many well-respected journalists and academics have been sounding the alarm about the stability of American democracy. Some focus their concerns on the person of Donald Trump, the authoritarian tendencies revealed in his presidency, the almost fanatical devotion of his partisan base, his disregard for democratic norms, and perhaps most of all, his refusal to accept the outcome of the 2020 election as legitimate. Anxiety looms about the next presidential election and whether Trump or another in his place will succeed in overturning the legitimate outcome of the election and seize power. Yet most thoughtful observers of American politics see the Trump phenomenon more as a symptom rather than a cause of our democratic malaise. Hyperpartisan polarization, gridlocked governmental institutions, rising citizen distrust of major societal institutions, particularly governmental institutions, rising inequality, concerns over racial justice, declining civility, and the loss of faith in democracy itself long preceded Donald Trump. American democracy does appear to be in crisis, and its causes seem to be deep and profound. What can be done? We might seek answers to this question in many quarters, but I thought it might be useful to turn to political philosophy and see what it might tell us about what brings on democratic dysfunction and how that dysfunction might be cured. With us today is a political theory expert, Assistant Professor of Political Science, Father Justin Brophy, who believes that remedies for what ills our democratic soul can be found in the ideas of an ancient Greek political philosopher, Plato, but also in the work of a contemporary political theorist, the late Kerry McWilliams. Professor Brophy has been a member of the PC Political Science faculty for the past two years after earning his PhD in political science at Notre Dame University in 2020. Father Brophy also earned his Bachelor of Arts degrees from Notre Dame in 2006. Between earning his BA and his PhD, Brophy was hardly idle. He underwent the rigorous training to become an ordained priest in the Dominican Order of Preachers, earning along the way a bachelor's, master's, and licentiate of sacred theology from the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. Prior to beginning his graduate study in political science at Notre Dame, Father Brophy served as an assistant chaplain at Providence College from 2012 to 2015. We were quite pleased to welcome Father Brophy back to PC when he joined our department in 2020, and he has proven to be a delightful colleague and dedicated teacher. Professor Justin Brophy, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's wonderful to be on the podcast. Okay, great. Well, I'm looking forward to an a interesting and I would think profound uh, discussion. I don't think we've delved deeply into political philosophy much on this podcast thus far. So uh, this will be a, a really uh, good opportunity to, 
to do something new here. So uh, to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about Plato, who he was, and Kerry McWilliams, and who he was, and what do you see the connection between these two philosophers? Sure. Oh, that's a big question to start off with, because you're asking me about two of my favorite people, uh, two kind of deep sources of personal uh, inspiration for me. Uh, so Plato is a I, I was going to say philosopher, but he's a, he's a poet as well. Um, just a, a great uh, figure of Western thought who's uh, living in ancient Athens in the uh, 5th century. Uh, and then uh, he, he wrote about basically everything under the sun. Uh, you know, uh, poetics and uh, the human person and politics and freedom and justice. Uh, and then uh, Carrie McWilliams was a, a more contemporary uh, theorist, as you pointed out, uh, who is from my native state of New Jersey. And uh, I uh, was captivated by his ideas as an undergraduate because one of my most influential teachers was a, a direct student of McWilliams at Rutgers. And... Uh, as a uh, primarily an American political theorist, uh, McWilliams wrote a lot about, uh, well, he wrote about what he called the second voice of American politics, uh, a voice that uh, emphasized our fraternal connections uh, rather than the Enlightenment emphasis on individual liberty. Uh, and these two thinkers together uh, and I did have the chance to meet Carrie at a conference I held as an undergrad, and he was just a uh, uh, larger-than-life, let's say, <laughs> um, wonderful, wonderful lecturer and uh, wonderful, warm presence. Uh, yeah, and he actually has a connection to a couple of our colleagues in the department. Uh, he served on Rick Battistoni's uh, Ph.D. committee hmm? uh, and uh, uh, his dissertation committee. And uh, our, our chair, Joe Camerano, knew McWilliams quite well uh, when he was a graduate student at Rutgers. And they both uh, speak very highly of him. And he, he certainly influenced both of them as well. It's been, it's been great to try to pick their brains uh, about McWilliams as well. Uh, I wish I got to know him as intimately as that. Uh, but both of these figures really helped me to think very deeply about concepts that, that have become pretty important to my, my intellectual makeup. Yeah, and you, you're leading a humanities seminar this semester on McWilliams, correct? Mm -hmm. What is the humanities seminar? And, and, and tell us something about the humanities program. Our listeners may not be that well acquainted with it. Yeah, so the, the humanities department is, uh, is basically interested in... Uh, Drawing from the the depths of uh, the tradition of of Western thought and the areas of philosophy and theology and history and English, uh, it's a very interdisciplinary program. And what's great is they offer these one credit seminars, and this is the second one I'm teaching. And it's a, it's a great way uh, to maybe put something on the on the schedule. Uh, 
enables one to read something you wouldn't otherwise read, or in my case, teach. Uh, so uh, it'd be tough, I think, for me to fashion an entire three-credit course on Carrie and McWilliams, but in the one-credit course, we can, we can read 14, 15 of his essays, and uh, I think that's really, that's really great. Uh, last semester, I did one on Walker Percy, uh, which was a lot of fun, too. We read one of his novels, Love in the Ruins. Yeah, so with the seminar, you're really taking a deep dive into McWilliams' views yeah. of, of democracy. And democracy was his major theme, right? Mm -hmm. American democracy and, and uh, what, what, what can be done to, to do it. Uh, you asked me to entitle this episode of the podcast The Democratic Soul. Uh, so could you explain what you mean by the democratic soul and how how that concept connects to both Plato and McWilliams. Yeah, so I suggested that title because uh, I thought it would be a good way of connecting the two thinkers because Plato writes about the democratic soul in Republic and uh, one of the collections of, of McWilliams' essays is titled The Democratic Soul. Uh, so I should say that my, my introduction to Plato, and I think that you will like this story a lot given some of the things you've written on, uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was a staunch libertarian. Uh, you know, my, my highest priority was uh, individual liberty. And in my second semester of my freshman year, with another of my most influential teachers, I read Plato's Republic for the first time. And there has been no book that I have ever read uh, there was no book before I read Plato's Republic, and there's been no book since that just completely blew my mind and raised the foundations of everything that I thought was true. And uh, everything about it. I was a big debater in high school, and so even the, the way it was written in terms of a dialogue was very appealing to me. And I remember sitting my, my professor down and telling him this. Uh, Mark Schiffman, who teaches now in the humanities program at Villanova. And I said, Professor, this, this book just blew everything up. It blew everything up. And he said, well, how? You know, what, what did it do? And I said, well, there's so many things. I said, but if you're going to push me on it, I said, I, I've realized that uh, liberty, freedom, has to be for something. It has to be for something that's genuinely good for the human person. It can't just be an absence from restraint. Uh, and that was the beginning of uh, a change of, of a total change of worldview for me. Uh, and one of the things that uh, Plato writes about the democratic soul, and Plato has a lot of criticisms to make of democracy. Uh, one of them is that it, it leads people to be undisciplined. Uh, it leads people to value lower sorts of goods, uh, wealth, for example, rather than higher sorts of goods. It's, it's an undisciplined freedom. As a matter of fact, it's a, a freedom that can be so undisciplined, it might even lead to a kind of tyranny, not to a kind, it, may, it can lead to tyranny, uh, because one runs the risk of becoming a slave to one's own desires. Uh, so uh, Plato, on the one hand, uh, has some very harsh things to say about the democratic soul. 
but I'm kind of a heretical reader of Plato. Uh, I actually think in many ways he's actually quite friendly to democracy, more than people give him credit for. Well, that's, that's astounding. I never <laughs> thought of Plato as friendly to democracy. So, so explain that. So, and that I, I, I can already see that might connect him to McWilliams because McWilliams clearly is friendly to democracy. Yes. Uh, I don't know if he's as friendly as McWilliams is to democracy, but what I'd say is this. All, all of those criticisms, uh, you know, taking into account all of those criticisms I just mentioned uh, about the dangers of, of democracy, and, and there's more, but how democracy is ineffective, um, how uh, the, the uh, democratic person can't really apply him or herself to uh, any particular goal uh, for a, a long period of time because of the, the lack of discipline, the entitlement that the children of democracy feel. And I think all of these things are actually generally true, uh, and I include myself in this, right? I'm a, I'm a child of democracy. But philosophy takes place within democracy. Uh, it's only within the democratic regime uh, and Plato does, if we read Book 8 of Republic, where he does this, uh, where he lists his five different regimes, uh, he calls the democratic man the blessed man, the blessed democratic man. It, it's in the context of democracy where human beings can begin to think about and ask questions about uh, what is what is a meaningful life, and how is life to be lived? Uh, and it's also within a democracy where uh, there might not be certain compulsions uh, from the regime to follow a particular form of life. There's a certain amount of freedom in which philosophy can flourish. And so I think that's the, the double-edged sword. Uh, Plato sees some real problems but he also sees some real opportunity. Well, I never thought of that before, but that's quite interesting because if you think about it, uh, uh, both Plato and Socrates, uh, his teacher, uh, often considered the, the fathers of philosophy, uh, lived in a democracy. Uh, that, they, that they, in fact, learned the practice of philosophy in, in the democracy. So, so democracy kind of compels, if, if, if one is truly a part of a democracy, it compels the individual to think about the ends of life, and I guess also the ends of the political regime, right? I think so. And I, and I think you know, so much of Plato's reflections are going to be based on his uh, experience with his teacher, Socrates. And... I think, again, here we see the double-edged sword. On the one hand, democratic Athens sentences Socrates to death. Uh, and for a lot of the reasons, Plato is going to be critical of democracy. But we read in, in uh, the Crito, for example, a dialogue where Socrates is in prison after he's been convicted, uh, even though he has the chance to escape, he won't do it. He submits to the laws of Athens because Athens has made him in an important way who he is and has allowed him to live the life that he lived. Uh, so I think, I think it's quite right to look at Socrates 
uh, as informing Plato's opinions here. Yeah, if we talk about democracy, um, McWilliams talks about this, and a lot of other political philosophers. Uh, the ancient conception of democracy and modern conceptions are not exactly the same. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. So, and this goes back to, to what I alluded to earlier uh, with McWilliams's distinctions between the first and second voice of, of American politics. So, I think McWilliams sees in, in a lot of the Enlightenment philosophy, but especially in the philosophy of, say, John Locke, uh, a certain anthropology, that is, an account of who the human person is, uh, that really emphasizes individual rights or natural rights and autonomy. Uh, Locke says that human beings are born naked into the world, that is, uh, freed from any kind of natural ties or associations, uh, that they are literally laws unto themselves. And uh, the way this philosophy is taken into, say, the formation of the American Republic uh, is to preserve, uh, the emphasis is on preserving these natural rights. Uh, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted amongst men. So in a sense, government is not natural. There's the state of nature, we have these natural rights, but then we kind of agree to, under a social compact, uh, to come together and form government to protect those rights. I think the more ancient conception uh, is that, to borrow from, from Aristotle, human beings are political animals. That is to say, we're not born naked into the world. Uh, we're born into the world as animals who are dependent and interdependent on one another. And I think that makes a lot more sense as an account of the human person. I mean, we learn our language and our habits from our parents and our families and our cultures. Yeah, the, the thing your freshman libertarian self didn't really understand, correct? Yes. No, you want to, you love to think of yourself as autonomous, uh, especially as, as uh, you know, you're younger, I think. Yeah. And, and even as you're older, there's an appeal to yeah. it, right? There's yes. an appeal to it. Uh but, but the idea being now, if it's the case that by nature human beings are political animals, and again, that's not to say uh, by nature we want to get involved in politics. It means that by nature we, we have this uh, kind of relationship of reliance and dependence on one another. Uh, well, then government, the, the polis, the regime is natural. It's natural to who we are. Uh, and so that causes us to re-examine, I think, what democracy should look like. Right. And uh, in McWilliams' work, he, he talks a lot about uh, the, the role that uh, this conception of liberty as the end of government has played in the development of our own democracy. And he, he finds a lot of fault with that. Uh, he, he does have, seem to have a quarrel 
with the framers in how they viewed our government. And in one of his essays, he, he talks about uh, that, that what Americans need to do is, uh, to quote McWilliams, restore equality to the highest goal of the republic. Hmm. And another point, he says, we love liberty too much and hmm. equality too little. So how does that play into this understanding of, of, of sort of the tension between these two different sort of ancient and modern views of democracy? So I, I think that this point is really important to understanding a lot of the discontents today. Uh, so I'm going to answer this question drawing again on, on kind of this framework we've, we've built up here. Uh, we kind of used Locke and Aristotle as our, our two thinkers. Um, I think a lot of people are discontented for the reason that rights are not enough. The right to vote is not enough to sustain a democracy. If it is the case that we are political animals, uh, that we are made for community, then I think it's important that each citizen not only cast a vote for a representative who is, at this point in time, pretty distant from the concerns of the voter, but rather has a, a share in both ruling and being ruled. Uh, I think that being a citizen means you have real agency. That is to say, uh, I can make real and noticeable contributions to my political community. My actions have meaning in the political context. And so to go back to the, the quotations of McWilliams directly, you know, liberty is important, I think. But if we value liberty in the sense of rights too much, that's a very kind of private view uh, rather than a, a communal one. It emphasizes the, the person as an individual rather than as a part of something larger. As a citizen. As a citizen, yeah. Right. I, I've, I've for many years been quite uh, disturbed by the extent to which the word citizen has sort of vanished from the American public uh, American vocabulary. Uh, we hear about uh, uh, clients and customers, uh, et cetera, and uh, even even in talking about uh, political uh, affairs, uh, that uh, or or constituents even, you know, rather than citizens, uh, which implies some obligations to the community. Mm -hmm. Okay, and. Uh, and I also, it implies obligations to the community, and it, it also means that everyone, not just a certain class of people, has agency in the regime. And I think that's, that's important. I, I think that there are a lot of people who, despite having a right to vote, for example, feel removed from the, the workings of government. And it also affects individuals thinking about uh, how they fit into the polity. And I think what we're mm -hmm. seeing so often uh, on both the left and the right in American politics is an attitude by people to think that they are these autonomous individuals uh, who, for, who are 
supposed to be served by the government um, and so that they can pursue whatever uh, goal that they want as an individual, irrespective of how it affects other people. Uh, and I, I, I think the obvious example in front of us recently is the, all the conflict over vaccines and masking and the like, where we hear people saying, uh, how dare uh, uh, this uh, requirement that I get vaccinated be imposed upon me. I, I should have complete control uh, over my life. And uh, uh, it doesn't, uh, and they, there's that no thought to how the rest of the community might be uh, involved in this, in this decision. Uh, and I think we can find other, you know, uh, examples like that. Uh, it's really hard right now, uh, I think. And again, so I think in the absence of any real commitments, uh, communal commitments, fraternal commitments, uh, uh, and real engagements as citizens, I think that makes it very difficult uh, to articulate any kind of definition of the common good. If uh, right right now, I think you know whether you're on the left, whether you're on the right, whatever, uh, it almost feels like the the way we define the common good is just kind of the conglomeration of what everyone's individual good is. Uh, that there there's not this. Uh, you know, common sense. Which is the libertarian definition. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And Milton Freedom actually defines the common good that way. <laughs> well, there we go. Right. You know, yeah. so, I mean, we've become, you know, the, the disciples of Milton Friedman. Uh, and, uh, and I think the result is that we, uh, and of course, it's easy to, uh, I think, understand that people resent things like mandates uh, because they don't see them as the product of uh, a process that they participated in in any way, but rather these outside forces coming down upon them. Uh, and uh, anyway. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I, I think, again, this is what's at stake uh, with having a robust conception of citizenship uh, or not. Right. Yeah. Now, but Williams thought the framers didn't have that robust conception, right? Uh, I, I guess James Madison is the the person to fault here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think McWilliams would say that the that a lot of the anti-federalists uh, articulated yeah the, those are the, the people who conception those are the people who oppose the Constitution. Right. Right. The right. Anti-federalists. Uh, but certainly, you know, the strategy of Federalist 10, say, to create a large uh, commercial republic, um, McWilliams would say, well, that's very problematic for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I mean, it's a real question whether or not you can have the kind of citizenship we've been talking about in a large republic. Uh, that separates people from kind of, uh, the local attachments that are so necessary. Um, it's tough to have the kind of citizenship we're talking about when you define your republic as commercial. 
uh, where you let the market dictate so much, uh, again, as opposed to a more robust articulation of the common good. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be uh, some of the issues that McWilliams would have with the, with the founding. I mean, this is where things get tricky. Uh, and, uh, you know, I suppose even though I, I met the guy, uh, you know, Mick Williams, like every other political theorist is subject to interpretation. Right. Um, and so I also read when I read Mick Williams, a man who really loved America, uh, despite his criticisms. And I think, you know, from reading his writings, he would say part of the, the reason he's able or he, he criticizes is precisely because he, he loves it so much. Um, I would say, I don't know if he would say this, but I would say in my interpretation of him that what we can take from McWilliams today is to learn to hold these things in tension. I mean, I'm not in favor of uh, an illiberal regime, say. You know, I, I like uh, certain liberties that uh, liberalism affords. You know, re religious liberty is important to me. <laughs> um, that's something that I care a lot about. Um, and in, in many ways, uh, liberalism helps give voice uh, to the kind of pluralistic society that we live in. But I think that this liberalism has to be circumscribed by these communal commitments. Uh, I think that we need to have uh, strong uh, familial bonds and bonds with our local communities. And I mean, I wish, you know, I'm a bowler, so I'm going to use that as an example. You know, I like to see uh, bowling alleys that are full and, and town hall meetings that are well attended uh, and, and things like this. So, uh, Despite the issues, I think one of the things we can take away from McWilliams is, uh, you know, you don't have to throw the whole thing out, but we can perhaps uh, make things better by reaffirming a commitment uh, to local communities, to local associations. Right. Yeah, but that that's a real uh, challenge. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned bowling. Uh, there's the famous Robert Putnam <laughs> yeah. book, Bowling Alone, uh, where that that came out in I think 2000, uh, where Put Putnam uh, looks at some statistics and founds, uh, finds that the number of bowlers in America had increased over the previous two decades, but the number of bowling leagues had declined. <laughs> uh, even despite your best efforts, Father Brophy, I know you're a <laughs> proud member of a bowling league. I am. Uh, but those are fewer and fewer. And the larger point is that the existence of these communal associations has been on the decline, that Americans increasingly are separated from one another. Uh, we don't have the fraternal organizations of the past. Uh, church attendance and involvement uh, is on the decline. Uh, uh, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Yeah. The nuns have become, the people who have no religious affiliation at all, have become uh, a very large proportion. I forget the statistic, but it's 
it's up there it's with up there, yeah. you know Protestants or Catholics. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like another sort of religious category. But what does that mean? It means people who are disconnected, and even among religious believers, there are many who who say they uh, are have religious beliefs, but they don't attend church. They aren't connected to a church community. Uh, and we can go on and on uh, about other kinds of associations. So, so uh, what do we do about this? I mean, how do we, uh, in one of his essays, uh, 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 McWilliams talks about the importance of uh, developing a you know, stronger you know, national community. Uh, but that seems almost like a, uh, a utopian dream uh, in America today. So, I would say two things, um, and I don't. I think this is the question, <laughs> and you know, I don't. I don't have an answer. Uh, but I could suggest two things. Um, the first is I, I read this really interesting book uh, by a guy named Martin Gurry called "Revolt of the People." He was a former CIA analyst, and he's trying to make sense of uh, loss of faith in institutions and its relationship to social media. And his argument is we, we have something analogous now to the upheavals that occurred shortly after the invention of the printing press. Uh, and so the, the fact is, is that with, with social media and with the quick spread of information and easy access to information, uh, the shortcomings of, of institutions are going to be known by everybody, and persons for that matter, you know, will be known by everybody and will be known quickly. And, you know, human beings are fallible beings. Uh, I think that, that uh, that's led to a lot of loss of faith in, in almost every traditional institution, and, and lots of it just warranted. Uh, and so, you know, we could, uh, we could talk a lot, you know, it's a field of what we're here to discuss about the, the rise of nuns, for instance. Uh, I'm not necessarily convinced that people are more or less religious. Uh, what I think is clear is that people... Uh, associate much less with institutional religion. Uh, and so how to square that circle, not just in terms of religion, but in terms of education and in terms of politics, uh, I think that's a big question facing us. And social media has many, many benefits, uh, and we, we see that every day. Uh, how it, it brings new information to light and it allows us to share that and, and shed light on things that need to have light shed on them. But how that relates to our institutions, I think, is going to be a, uh, a crucial question going forward. And, and it goes without saying that I think institutions and trust in institutions is something that is necessary. Uh, now, even though I'm very... Uh, you know, ambivalent on this point, the second thing I want to say is this. If it is true that human beings are, are political beings, if it is true that we are interdependent, and that's not just something I, I posit 
or make up for the the sake of organizing politics, then there will be some resolution because if it's true, uh, then it means we're going to need those institutions, we're going to need those communities to live fulfilling lives. Uh, and so we will somehow find a way uh, to, to make it work. What that's going to look like, I don't know. I mean, I have my ideas. I form my bowling leagues. Uh, right. You know, simple things like being a good member of the, the department or the college community. I think these are little things that, that we can try to do. Uh, but how that's done nationally, uh, I know it looks bleak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in one of his essays, uh, McWilliam says that uh, there's no imperative greater for American democracy than to rebuild the institutions that connect citizens with their government. Uh, and uh, I, I, you mentioned the, the schools, for example. Um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, coverage in the media of, of parents being discontent with the schools and, again, around things like mass mandates, but also uh, the content of uh, what's being taught in the schools and the like. And one of the things that I've noticed in all that coverage is the extent to which these parents seem to have a connection, don't seem to have a connection to the schools their kids go to. Uh, and I can say this as a relative, as an elderly person, uh, it sounds like a very different context than the one I grew up with, hmm. you know, back in the 1950s where where my parents, uh, you know, knew my teachers. Uh, they, they, they trusted my teachers. They knew my principals. They trusted the people uh, in, in the school uh, that I went to. Uh, and uh, that allowed them to have confidence uh, to, to send me to that school and, and trust that I was going to get a good education. But it seems that a lot of parents today, you know, don't have that connection yeah uh you know i don't <laughs> i don't have children of my own so i don't know how this this works now um but that was certainly the case for my parents when i was going through the school but i i think there's something analogous too with the way we conduct our political discourse you know things are very polarized right now and things can get very nasty very quickly well, uh, look, I may have, and I do, have disagreements all the time with guys in my bowling league, for example. But when you're rolling with somebody every week, well, I'm not going to get as nasty because I know this person and I'm friends with this person. Right. And the bonds of friendship uh, transcend kind of my need to be right about some political point. And so I think you're right that a lot of the discourse, it, it, it doesn't mean all the problems are going to be solved, far from it, but it, it means that the conditions are set that we might be able to have a much more productive conversation. Right. And in the larger context, I mean, very often in American politics, um, controversy comes down to competition between different rights, rights yeah. that are in conflict with one another. And we have this regime set up by the framers where where the protection of rights is the is the end and so uh, one person will define their right uh, as uh, as uh, as imperative as 
it can't be uh, challenged. And that comes in conflict with another right. Uh, and actually, in preparing for the podcast today, I was thinking about the, uh, the example of the, of the marriage cake in Colorado, uh, where there's a, a baker uh, who specializes in making wonderful cakes, uh, and uh, a gay couple comes to him and want to purchase a wedding cake, and the baker refused. And this was a case that ended up in the Supreme Court, though they ended up ducking the real issue. Uh, but, but what was happening there was that uh, uh, there were supposedly two rights that each side was asserting. Uh, the gay couple was saying, uh, we have a right to non-discrimination. Uh, we should, this is a public uh, entity that sells on the open market. Uh, we should be able to go and buy whatever is made there just like anybody else. On the other side, the baker, who was a, uh, uh, a, a believing Christian who thought that and objected to gay marriage, saying, well, um, I don't want to discriminate against these guys, but I can't make a cake that's going to celebrate a union that I find immoral. And therefore, forcing me to make this cake violates my religious liberty. And so this is defined in terms of these conflicting liberties. So I was just wondering, trying to do a thought experiment, is there a, how might we settle that conflict democratically from the standpoint of the dignity of the individuals uh, rather than a conflict over whose right should prevail. So what I think the deep issue is there, so if we, we put aside kind of which side anyone falls on in that case, the big question that liberalism does not answer explicitly uh, is or questions like this. Uh, what is the best kind of life? What is a good life? Uh, why? Because the answer to that question, liberalism wants to make an individual question. Right. right? And now, the, the original liberals had good reasons for doing this, because there are people who are fighting and killing each other over their conceptions of the good life. Right. Uh, and so, you know, the idea is, uh, in order to prevent this from happening, uh, you know, we're just not going to answer that question anymore. Rather, you know, we're going to change the emphasis. But the problem is, when you make that a purely individual question, you come to the dilemma that you've, you've just described. You have two people who have different conceptions of, of what constitutes a good life. Uh, and so you have this really intractable debate uh, over whose right prevails. Um, so I think one of the big problems, uh, again, this, for me this goes back to the question we discussed earlier about how we define what the common good is. Uh, and un unless we do that, I think those kinds of debates remain intractable. But how we're going to have that discussion now, uh, with the country as large as it is, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. But in a small community, uh, could this be settled 
democratically uh, through some conception of, you know, what's good for the community here. Oh, sure. Without, without, without violating the, the, the concerns of, of both parties. Well, I think, it, I mean, if it's going to be done democratically, uh, it would require a real discussion. Uh, right. And, you know, yeah, I think that obviously I'm open to that, that possibility for sure. Yeah. It would require real deliberation. Real deliberation. Yeah. It would right. require, uh, you know, the rule of democracy is that the, the majority rules. Yeah. But I think in a true democracy, McWilliams would say certainly uh, that the rights of the minority are still respected in some important way. And again, yeah. that's connected to the bonds yeah. of friendship. And so how that would resolve itself would depend on the community uh, in which the discussion takes place. But I think those would be two of the essential elements. Yeah. And so somehow in our big democracy, we have to come up with a way of <laughs> finding this you know, commonality that, that unites us uh, across our, our many differences. Uh, I mean, one thing about liberalism, as you said, is that it does at least create a way for people who have very different views of the ends of of the good life uh, living together in peace, mm -hmm. presumably. Uh, if in fact you can sort of figure out a way that they can live together. Uh, but 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 I worry that in America today we've kind of we're, we're reaching almost the ends of that. That that the the, the whatever binds us together. Uh, it doesn't seem to be strong enough to prevent these violent clashes uh, between these different conceptions. And, and that's the real danger for our democracy, I think, that, that we have to find some common good we have to f that, that everybody can sign into, uh, other than simply saying, oh, our common good is uh, you know, tolerance. You know, we'll, we'll, I'll let you go your way, you go my way. Until, of course, we come in conflict, and then, then how do you resolve that? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think a lot of people see that right now, um, and I do. I think there's a lot of fear over the uncertainty of how this is going to resolve itself. Yeah. And, and I want to make clear, too, part of the reason why I still hold to certain liberal commitments is because you can, you can crack in the opposite extreme, too, where we've seen... Uh, you know, or at least under the guise of what I would call a true common good, under the guise of a common good, uh, where you can become really oppressive towards the individual. Uh, and, you know, that's another extreme to be avoided, I think. Um, right, that seems to be part of what's going on with this sort of fashion for illiberal democracy, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll have a the so-called populist will will impose itself and make the peace of society even if it might trample on, you know, liber the the rights of, of lots of other people. Yeah. And I, and I I personally think that those those models end up being authoritarian in the end. Anyway, that they aren't. That you, you can't even apply. And I'm thinking here of Viktor Orban in Hungary, for example, where uh, he, he he calls himself an illiberal democrat. He he's he's all into the critiques of liberalism. Uh, but claims to speak for the majority of people in Hungary. Uh, but it's looking increasingly like uh, it's not really the majority. 
and, and, and they end up um, imprisoning journalists and uh, manipulating the media, media and, and you end up with something that looks very far from anything we would consider uh, democratic. Yeah, not not good things. Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't. Know, I think McWilliams would say, "Liberal democracy, for all its flaws, is what we have to work with." Yeah, my, yeah. Again, my interpretation of him is, you have to respect the tensions. Uh, there's a first voice of American politics. It's Enlightenment liberalism, but it's in dialogue with another voice. It's in tension with another voice. And we ignore that voice, we neglect that voice at our peril. Uh, because, uh, you know, the first voice unchecked, uncircumscribed by fraternal attachments, uh, you know, that's a, it becomes problematic for all the reasons we're discussing. Right. Well, uh, very good. I think maybe that's a good note to end on. We have to find a way of reconciling uh, these two voices in America. And certainly thinking about the kinds of ideas that both Plato and uh, McWilliams uh, talked about, I, I think are very helpful. So, so thanks very much, uh, Professor Brophy, uh, for your insights. Uh, I certainly enjoyed this conversation. Me and too. Thanks for having me. And some tough questions, but I enjoyed thinking them through with you. And I hope our listeners uh, get some value out of it. And thanks to our two student uh, podcast producers, Sienna Strickland and Isabella Fernandez, who have been managing the equipment here today and are responsible for uh, making us sound uh, brilliant uh, and sonorous over the airwaves. Uh, and thanks also to uh, the Office of Marketing Communications, uh, Joe Carr and Chris Judge, for their ongoing support of Beyond Your Newsfeed. And most especially, thanks to our listeners. Tell four or five friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thanks very much.